Good morning, guys. You uh, probably heard the name Travis. If you're if you're visiting with us, um, Travis is our pastor, and he is away. He's in the midst of his sabbatical, almost through with it. But I'll be your guest speaker this morning, and so um, I don't have anybody to blame except my own big mouth for being up here because I, I shared. Pat- uh, Travis and I met for coffee a few months ago, and I said, you know, at the church I used to go to, I, I was an elder there for a little while, and I would um, support the pastor, fill the pulpit from time to time, and, I, you know, I kind of miss that from time to time. He said, oh, really? <laughs> so be careful what you tell the pastor. Um, if, if I had to, um, and I, I didn't pick a name, I guess a title for this sermon. I I have a hard time doing that, but if I had to, I guess I would call it a different story. And so this this week, what we're doing, we're continuing with the Deeper Faith series, and over the past couple of months, we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, verse by verse, and last week we looked at, at Moses and the circumstances surrounding his birth. And the text this week, it continues to refer to Moses. This week, it will be Hebrews 11, 27, and 28, which says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And so bear with me here. I think it's important to to just go back over Moses. You probably heard his story, but just to have the background that Moses, he lived to be 120 years old, and his story, it's, it's told throughout the entire book of Exodus. And so his first 40 years, he spent in Egypt, where you remember that he was found floating in the Nile, um, and he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace as a prince. And that although he was raised as a prince, Hebrews 11.24 tells us that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because in his heart he knew that he was a Hebrew. And at 40 years old, he witnessed an Egyptian slave driver that that was beating a Hebrew slave and his anger had just boiled over. And he ended up stepping in and he killed the Egyptian and he hid the body in the sand But there were witnesses to that. And so when word got out, Moses ran for his life, fleeing hundreds of miles away to what's modern-day Saudi Arabia, but it was was the land called Midian at that time. And so he spent 40 years in Midian as a sheep herder. And he was married there with two sons. It was in Midian, herding sheep alone, that God appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of of a bush. And the Bible says that the flame burned, but it didn't consume the bush. And it also tells us that that God had seen the oppression of the Hebrews in Egypt. And that he had heard their cries, and he remembered his promise to deliver them. And now was the time that he he had chosen to deliver them from slavery and to bring them into their own land, the promised land. And so God spoke to Moses from that bush, telling Moses that he would return back to Egypt, and it would, it would be him, Moses, that would lead God's people out of slavery. I've chosen you, Moses. I want you to do this. 
And so at 80 years old, Moses packs up his family and he heads back to Egypt following the Lord's call to confront Pharaoh and to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. But God warns Moses that it won't be easy to convince Pharaoh to give up the Hebrews. Exodus 3, 19 and 20, God said, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And so Moses goes and his first meeting, has his first meeting with Pharaoh and it doesn't go well. Moses tells Pharaoh that the Lord has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh laughs him out of the place. And he said, who's this Lord that I ought to obey his voice and let Israel go? I, I don't know your Lord, and I won't let Israel go. And Pharaoh throws Moses out. And he's so offended by it that, that, Pharaoh, that Moses would have the gall to demand their release that he doubles down on the punishment and the affliction of the Hebrews. They're already under heavy forced labor, and he doubles their workload, and they're beaten mercilessly. And so Moses goes back to God, and he says, look, God, this isn't working out. Things didn't get better. They've gotten worse. Since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done nothing but evil to us. And, and... You haven't delivered your people at all, like you said you would. But God's patient with him, and he repeats his promise that, that he indeed he'll rescue and that he's going to redeem them. He'll purchase their freedom from slavery. But God still knows Pharaoh's heart, his stub stubbornness and his resistance. And so in order to break him down, God says, God brings about this series of plagues. There were a total of 10. And so the first one was that all of the water sources, the streams, the ponds, the rivers, the pools of water, were turned to blood. Next came frogs, millions of them. So many that they got inside of houses, bedrooms, beds, even inside the ovens and their cooking bowls. Everything was filled with frogs. Then third was this infestation of lice on every person and animal throughout the land. Behind that was flies, swarms of them through every house, every person. The Bible says that the ground itself was just covered with flies. And so after that came the plague of this disease on all of the livestock, every type of livestock, cattle, horses, donkeys, camels, sheep. They all became sick and died. The sixth plague was boils, nasty, festering, open sores that erupted on every person and every animal. Next, God brought down this severe hailstorm, and it decimated the landscape. It, it broke every plant and every tree in the land. And after that, the eighth plague was locusts, swarms of these grasshoppers, clouds of them so thick that the land was darkened by them. And every green plant and tree that hadn't been destroyed by the hail was devoured by these locusts. The next plague, the ninth, was this strange darkness. The Bible says it was a thick darkness where there was no light in Egypt and it lasted for three days. 
And so, so as each plague occurs, there's this cycle that repeats itself where God, through Moses, asks Pharaoh to, to release the Hebrews and warns him of the consequences if he doesn't. And sure enough, at every turn, Pharaoh resists until he's experienced the plague, suffered in it, and then he'll relent and he'll say, okay, I'll let them go. Only to change his mind after the heat's turned off, once God stops the plague. And so this happens over and over again until it reaches this climax in the 10th plague. God's had enough. So in the 10th plague, God turns the tables on Pharaoh, just as Pharaoh had killed the sons of the Hebrews, God says that he will kill the firstborn sons of Egypt, even Pharaoh's own son. But God provides a way out for the Israelites, his own people, his believers, his followers. God tells Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he'll surely let you go from here. When he lets you go, he's going to drive you out of here altogether. He says, I'm coming this time. Not flies or fleas or hailstones. I'm coming. Exodus 12, 12, God said, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And God goes on to warn Moses of what's about to happen, that he is coming in judgment, that there'll be death. But his plan includes a way out, a way to avoid death. And God instructs Moses how they're to prepare for this final plague. And he promises that he will pass over the homes that are marked as his believers. Exodus 12, 21 through 30 it says that then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this as a right, as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You'll say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. So God commands, you shall observe this forever. You shall pass this down to your sons, your children, forever. This shall be a memorial. You shall keep it through your generations. 
He says, I want you to be faithful in remembering. Don't forget this. Don't forget what I've done. Don't forget who I am. Trust is the firm belief in the reliability, the truth, the ability, or the strength of someone. If we trust someone, we, we place our confidence in them. We rely on them. We confidently expect them to be able to do what they say they are able to do or what they've demonstrated they're able to do. You can count on them. That's also faith, isn't it? Faith and trust go hand in hand. And one of the absolute essentials for us as Christians is that we have a complete and accurate picture of who God truly is. Sometimes scriptures contain hard sayings. And one thing that stuck out as I was preparing for this was how this certain theme kept appearing throughout the story of God's confrontation with Pharaoh through the plagues. If you look at my Bible as I prepared, it looks like you gave a five-year-old a grande dark roast with a turbo shot and handed him a crayon and said, go to town and start coloring. But each of these, if you can see them, spots in red, is a spot that refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart in certain places. And so it's this theme that you repeatedly see that God hardens his heart, and it starts in Exodus 3, when God is speaking through the burning bush. He tells Moses that he knows the king of Egypt will not release the Hebrews, but he's going to stretch out his hand and strike Egypt. And in chapter 4, God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And so at first glance, this raises questions, doesn't it? Something doesn't seem right. It seems like God's playing this cruel game with Pharaoh. Because it would be unjust of God to cause any human being to commit evil and then turn around and punish them. That type of injustice would contradict and it would violate the very character of God. And so we need to look a little closer at the sequence of events. And the first thing is, is that Pharaoh isn't an honest, innocent, upright guy that God just grabs off the street and creates evil in his heart. Pharaoh is, in fact, one of the most wicked men of the Bible. He's commanded midwives to kill babies as they're being born. When that didn't work, he ordered that little baby boys are to be thrown in the Nile to drown. He's brutally kept an entire population in slavery. In his mind, he is God. He answers to no one but himself. But this time in his life, by this time in his life, rather, he's already been committing acts of evil. He's good at it, if that makes any sense. He's already a sinful man. And when you look closely at the order of the plagues, you see that in each of the first five plagues, Pharaoh is presented with an opportunity to surrender this opposition to God and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told in one way or another simply that either his heart grew hard or that he hardened his own heart toward God. He refused God. 
He became stubborn toward God, but it was all on his own. That was his choice. I think of how many times in my own life that I've bargained with God saying, if you just get me out of this, this scrape that I'm in, I'll change. I'll do whatever you want only to go back to my old ways afterward. And God allows us to make our choices, but he doesn't allow us to change what the circumstances of those are. And so it's only after the first five plagues that we're told that it's God that actually begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. So what does that mean exactly? What it means is that God allows Pharaoh to further descend into sin. There's this famous quote from C.S. Lewis from the, from the book, The Great Divorce, where he says, there are only two ty- kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And you know, for each of us individually, I think that sums up what our time on this earth is really about. It's figuring out if we're heading down a path that takes us further from God, a path that places distance between us, where we're chasing our own will, or are we on a path that draws us nearer to him and his will for our lives? One way or the other, we're making a choice. We're choosing who's the Lord of our life, either ourselves or God. And in the first chapter of Romans, Paul describes how mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie how we've distanced ourselves from God, how we've tried to separate ourselves from Him, how we've pushed God out of our lives. And Paul says that God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up to their passions. He gave them over to a debased mind. He gave them up. He gave them over. He handed them over to their sins. I don't know about you, but the idea of God handing me over to someone or something, it's a fright other than him, it's a frightening thing. It's a sobering thing to think that God would abandon us. I once heard a pastor say that for the Christian, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get, and for the unbeliever, it's as close to heaven as you'll ever as they'll ever get. And what that means is that this earth, this life, it's a place where to a degree we experience both good and evil. The presence of God and the absence of God. Heaven is a place where there's a total absence of evil. Heaven is only the complete presence of God. And hell, on the other hand, is a place where there's a total absence of good a total absence of God, a complete separation from God. And I think a lot of times we lose sight of the importance of God's presence, of his influence in this world and on our lives. A lot of times we would define evil as this power or force that's in opposition to God, but in reality, it's the absence of God. It's the absence of God. It's the absence of his grace and mercy. It's the absence of his love. It's the absence of his restraint on sin in our lives. 
I think back in my own life to this defining moment. When I was in high school, I was a poster child for peer pressure. Whatever the other guys, the group that I wanted to fit in with, wanted to do, I was pulled along. We drank, we partied, we had a good time, whatever it was, I went along. And I remember this night that I had just started dating my wife, uh, my future wife, Jen, and we got invited by my friends to, uh, just to get together at their apartment, just a couple friends, my best friends. And so we sat and talked for a bit, and then the guy said, hey, come on out, let's go out in the other room. And so we went in the back room of the apartment, me and my two best friends, and we're talking and sitting there, and one of them opens up a drawer and pulls out a bag full of white cocaine. Pulls out a mirror, a razor blade, a dollar bill that gets rolled up, just like you'd, you'd see on TV. And the lines get spread on the glass, and the dollar bill gets passed around until it came to me. And up until that point, whatever was put in front of me, I went along with. But I felt then something different. Something that said, that's not a path you want to go down. And I said, no thanks. And it cost me that friendship. And I don't tell that story to hold myself up as some moral example because I'm no better than anyone else. I tell that story because it's a reminder of me of how God held me in his hand that day when he could have handed me over to that. And where would I be without him? Two years ago, I spoke the eulogy at my cousin's cousin's funeral. He was five or six years younger than me Same last name, same family tree, same small town, same school, same teachers, everything. But Scott went down a different path. Addiction caught him. His last day was when he took a a ride in the car down a back road with a shotgun. And I think back on that, and I think not only of how my earthly life could have been different, but more importantly, how my eternal life is now different. The events of Passover were meant to point back, to be a reminder, so that the Israelites could look back and see what God had done for them, how he had rescued them physically, in an earthly sense, how he had saved them from evil and oppression and his judgment, how he had saved them from death that night. But at the same time, the events of Passover were meant to point ahead to what Jesus would do for his believers, for you and me, to rescue our souls for eternity from sin and God's judgment of it. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says that for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It was Jesus who was the Passover lamb. It was Jesus' blood that was shed. It was Jesus who died so that you could be saved. God gave Pharaoh lots of wake-up calls. He tried to get his attention, but instead he chose to ignore and reject God over and over. And there's a limit to God's patience for it. Attempting to live life without God has consequences, and they're eternal ones. There's this line in a Chris Tomlin song that says, Story. I could have had a really different story. And every time I hear that song, it hits home because I know exactly where I'd be without Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. How about you? If you're already a believer, how long has it been since you stopped and considered exactly where you'd be without him? And maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're in a place where you've been bargaining with him or even running away from him. But you know inside that you need to turn the page on where your story is headed. Maybe you've been trying to live life without God and you know you need a new chapter, a new direction in life. If that's you this morning and you need help with the next step, please don't leave here without speaking to somebody Or if you'd rather just fill out a connect card and you can mark it confidential if you want. I'm going to wrap up here, but I'd like to just take another minute and go back to the original text for today. Hebrews 11, 27 and 28, which says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured to seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So again, this is referring to Moses. And I'd like to try to bring some context to verse 28 specifically, which says, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, he kept the Passover. He kept it. What does that mean? God gave Moses a charge to keep, a duty, a responsibility to uphold. Moses was commissioned by God. He was chosen by God, called by him to lead the Israelites. So I'd ask you to picture Moses as a pastor and the Israelites his congregation. And so now place yourself in Moses' sandals and imagine having the responsibility of gathering your congregation and standing before them by yourself and instructing them that God would be coming in judgment and that you must kill a lamb and apply the blood to your doorway and stay inside or else your oldest sons would be killed by this invisible destroyer that very night. And now imagine if you were an Israelite, and Moses told you that. What would your reaction be? Hard to believe? Crazy? What's everybody going to think if they see me putting blood on my door? 
Do you know what kind of looks I'm going to get if I do that? And now imagine how different their, their stories would have been if Moses had folded to fear and pressure and had never told them. Can I share something with you guys as someone, I've told you before, I'm on most Sundays, I'm sitting in the seats right where you are. I don't hold any title or fill any special role other than that. I'm someone who's just like you. This is hard. When I say this, I mean putting together a sermon and walking up here to stand alone with eyes on you, a microphone amplifying your words, knowing that those words are being recorded and they'll be sent out over social media. There's pressure with that, and there's also pressure with preparing the sermon because you try to consider your audience as you choose the words you'll say, and you try to be sensitive to what hidden hurts or problems they might be going through and how those words might affect them, what their reaction might be. And you ask yourself, will they like you? Will they like your style? Will they understand what you're trying to say? Will the message make any sense? Am I going to come across as, point, as pointing my finger at someone or pointing it at me? Or will I be able to do it right and point to Jesus Christ? Is anything that I say going to make a difference? And up against that, there's this awareness that this is a great responsibility. Responsibility to you that if I misrepresent or misinterpret the Scripture, that you could be led into believing and acting on something that isn't true. There's a responsibility to God that it's His Word that's being preached and not mine. This is not easy. And yet, this is what our pastors go through each and every week. I told you last week about the Johnny and Friends retreat down in New Hampshire. It's a two-hour ride down there, and, and I rode with Travis and Dylan, and we listened to this podcast on the way, and it was Francis Chan, and he spoke about the responsibility of a pastor. He spoke about how, how Jesus himself said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, and in fact, that he's going to turn them away, some of them away. His own words, depart from me because I never knew you. That's a scary thing. That some of us here today could be completely mistaken about the depth of our faith and who Jesus Christ really is. And that's the danger in the church today, that there are those who think they know God, but they're mistaken about his true nature. One of God's purposes in the plagues was to destroy the Egyptian religion and worldview. Each of the plagues attacked a specific Egyptian god. They had gods for everything. Gods that looked like frogs. Gods that looked like flies. They had a pharaoh who thought he was God. And the Israelites had been immersed in this Egyptian culture and worldview for more than 400 years. It affected their beliefs. They bought into the go those gods. They exchange the truth of their real God for a lie. The same thing is happening today. As our culture moves further and further away from God, the church is being pulled along with it. 
But just as God called the Israelites to be different, he is still calling his people to be different and to be set apart from the world around us today. I believe that we want to be different. I believe that we want to live lives that someone looks at and sees a different story. I believe that we want to be a church that makes a difference. I know that I want to grow in my faith, and that means that I need to be confronted with the Word of God. I want to be warned of the reality of hell so that I know the true hope of heaven. I need to have my hardened heart revealed so that the Lord can soften it. I need to be reminded of exactly where I'd be without Jesus Christ. And I want the men in the pulpit to be free to deliver the true word of God, but I realize that's not easy. It's not easy to stand up here and preach about sin and judgment but it is so necessary to our growth as believers. And more than that, for our eternal security. Our pastors have been given a charge to keep, just like Moses. We as the church need to remember to stand alongside them, to support them, to encourage them, and pray for them so that they can remain faithful in it. So would you join me in a prayer for them as we close out? Father God, I, I thank you for who you are, for who you truly are. I thank that you that you have created a way for each of us to experience eternal life with you. With you, not absent from you. And Father, I thank you for where I am and for your hand upon me. And Lord, I thank you that today, even today, you're still calling men like Moses to preach your truth. And so I, pr I pray for each of our pastors here. Pray for Travis and Ian and Russ and for their families that you would, you would hold them and protect them and that you'd encourage them and embolden them and that they would be able to preach your word. And I just thank you for, for sending them here. And I praise you in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.